this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Fiction. I'm G.P. Gottlieb, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Tony Romano about his new book, Where My Body Ends and the World Begins, published in December of 2017 by Allium Press, a local Chicago press. The book imagines what it might have been like for one of the survivors of a tragic fire that took place in a Catholic school in the Humboldt Park neighborhood of Chicago on December 1st, 1958. After the fire broke out, just before the end of the day at Our Lady of the Angels School, it just swept through the old wooden building. 92 children and three nuns were killed, and the fire is still considered to be one of Chicago's most horrendous tragedies. The fire began in a basement trash bin and went unnoticed for a critical amount of time because smoke detectors had not yet become commercially available. In his book, author Tony Romano imagines 20-year-old Anthony Lazaro, who along with his best friend Marianne, survives the fire. Marianne was in the same class as Anthony's sister, Ellie, who didn't make it out of the school in time. The story opens with Anthony suffering from an unnamed mental illness, deliberately breaking his own leg. It had started to feel foreign to his body. Lipschultz, the retired cop who lives next door, thinks Anthony may have set the fire and that his strange behavior is just another sign of his guilt. Since the fire, Anthony's family has fallen apart. His father disappears. His mother takes a faraway job and Anthony lives with his grandmother He also lives with the ghost of his beloved sister. In this beautifully written, sensitive novel, Tony Romano considers trauma and how it can be overthrown, overcome through time and the love of family and community. And now I'd like to say hello to Tony Romano, author of When the World Was Young and um, If You Eat, You Never Die, and the book we're going to be talking about today where my body ends and the world begins. Hi, Tony. Hi, Galit. How are you today? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. So let's start out by, if you wouldn't mind, telling us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? And what do you do when you're not writing? Okay. Uh, I was born in uh, Italy and came here when I was a year old, which isn't all that remarkable, except that when we came here, my father was uh, 37 years old. He didn't know a word of English, probably the most timid guy you'd ever meet. Weighed about 100 pounds when he arrived here until my mom fattened him up up a bit. So I've lived with this wonder of uh, what if we hadn't come here? What would I be doing now? Who would I be? And for me, this is the perfect place to be for a writer because people who are always certain uh, don't need to write anything down. But I've lived with this uncertainty my whole life. So anyway, we moved to Chicago to the kind of neighborhood described in the book, uh, blue collar, hardworking, not looking to get rich, just enough to provide for their families. And I went to a Catholic school uh, three or four doors down from this 
we live three or four do- school. Uh, sorry, we live three or four do- doors down from the school, so we can come home for lunch every day, because that was the most important thing—not English or history, or catechism, but the minestrone soup and the pasta fazul. And so I stayed in Chicago, went to DePaul, and I taught uh, high school English and psychology for uh, for many many years. So that's it. <laughs> and when did you start writing? Um, publishing. I probably started seriously when I was at Northeastern for a master's degree, and I found out that I didn't need to write a thesis if I were if I chose to write short stories instead, my own short stories. So so that's what I did. And I took the same uh, classes over there, the same creative writing classes over and over again until until I had a collection that became uh, "If You Eat, You Never Die." Great title. Thanks. Something my dad used to say all the time, and it would crack himself. He would crack himself up telling us, uh, telling us this. I'm not sure where he got it from. So when I was able to present him the book with uh, with his with his words on the cover, that was uh, quite a thrill for for both of us. And and then your novel, you wrote that next, your first novel. Yeah, I wrote uh, when the world was young. After that, because uh, publishers weren't really interested in uh, publishing short stories, and. Uh, so it took quite a quite a while to find an agent for that, but once I did, she was able to to find a publisher within a matter of weeks. It's a good story. Um, so your book is a lovely tribute to those who lost their lives in the Our Lady of Angels fire of 1958. Why did you choose that particular tragedy? It's a uh, it's a story I was very familiar with because my mother in law was a student there. She had just graduated a few earlier before the fire. Uh, but her brother was uh, was an eighth grader at the time, and so she would uh, always reminisce. I, I, reminisce is not the right word. You could see the uh, the unresolved grief in her voice, and it was always hard to talk about. But the story she always told was how her her brother was excused about ten or fifteen minutes before the fire because they needed some volunteers to help load a, a clothing tri- uh, clothing truck, and. Uh, he found out that day that 26 of his classmates uh, had died. When I talked to young people about this, uh, I asked them, how many times do you think Uncle Jerry talked about this? And they genuinely don't know the answer because if it were to happen today, there would be counselors in there uh, immediately. But mm-hmm. there, was, there was probably not a single time that he talked about it with, uh, with anyone. So you never got to talk to him about it? No, I didn't. Uh, he died as a young man. He died when he was about forty. Uh, I know I would have talked to him now about it if he had uh, if he had lived longer. But uh, but even if I had tried back then, I don't think he would have been open to it. He would have shrugged it off. He would have changed the subject. What a trauma for a kid, thirteen, twelve, thirteen year old kid. Exactly. So what? T- let's talk about the fire. Why? Why wasn't it put out sooner? Why didn't more students escape? Where were the fire trucks? What was happening? Well, there was a fire station that was only a few blocks away. And uh, the school didn't have any kind of efficient uh, alarm system. You had to go outside the school to actually sound the alarm. And when that finally happened, uh, the fire had been blazing for a while. Uh, There were no fire doors on the second floor, which is why... uh, Many people, many of the students who died were from were on the second floor. There was no sprinkler system, and the fire uh, served to change uh, all of that, not only in Chicago but uh, but throughout the country. 
And one other final uh, mishap or really unfortunate tragedy is that the uh, the firemen were given the wrong address, so they went to the rectory instead of the actual uh, school, and so that uh, that took up quite a bit of of time, necessary time. So there were probably lots of other peripheral people who were traumatized, aside from the families. Um, mental illness. This is uh, there's a lot of focus on that because Anthony um, has a mental illness. Can you talk about it and the treatment for it and how it how it came about for him? Yeah, he has this uh, condition. Nowadays, it's called a body integrity disorder. But back in 1967, uh, it was not labeled as such. And my editor at Allium, she was able to find that out for me, which was uh, fortunate. So I didn't uh, mistakenly put put that in there. But he feels that a part of his body, and particularly his leg, is not a part of him. And he feels like he needs to to resolve it. So if you've ever had a, a situation where a tooth is cracked just a bit, uh, you're constantly, your tongue is constantly going to that crack in the tooth and you want to resolve it. So imagine that it, an entire body part didn't feel like a part of you, the, the lengths you would go to, to try to resolve that. There's not really a, what, what you would call a cure, but there's this one, uh, there's this one doctor, Dr. Ramachandran, who's become uh, an expert in these uh, sort of odd disorders. And he comes up with these ingenious low-tech, uh, graceful ways of, uh, of solving these, these issues. And I don't want to get into it too specifically to ruin some of the surprises in the book. Right. Um, so was Anthony based on an actual student at the school? No, I didn't want to appropriate that. Uh, he's, he's not based on any particular, uh, person. I guess there's a part of me and all my characters, but, uh, no, he's not a, a, a student. Uh, he's not a, 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 an actual student from the school, no. Okay. He's a really interesting character. And he has a best friend, Marianne, who was in the same class as his sister. Can you talk about Marianne and a little bit about how did those who survived make it out? These were children. How'd they, how'd they get out? Yeah, that's uh, that's still a puzzle because I'm not sure if uh, if they really uh, did make it out emotionally. Like I said, my my uncle never mm-hmm. talked about it. Uh, at one of my readings, uh, I ran into a woman and she pointed out she showed me a photograph, this iconic photograph from the Tribune with the firemen on the on the cover of the on the front page, and she pointed to one of the firemen and said, "That's my father." The pointed to a fireman, and I said, "Well, did he ever talk about it with you?" And she said, "No, not not ever." So, so Marianne is the kind of character who uh, forms this bond with Anthony because at least the two of them can talk about it and, and can talk about the fact that no one will reveal anything to them. No, no one will, will uh, want to even broach the subject. So she, she tries to be as kind as she can because she knows that Anthony is suffering from this, uh, this condition. And the, the central question becomes, what's the best way to help another person? And I'm not sure if what she does is is the best solution, but it's the best best solution that that she can uh, come up with at least. These they're at the point that the story starts. They're both 20 years old. So Marianne seems way healthier than Anthony. Is she? 
Well, she appears that way, but she uh, she ends up having some problems of her own. And uh, unlike Anthony, Marianne is able to support him, but uh, there's really no one uh, to support her as as well. So, uh, so she's she's probably one of the more uh, lonely characters in the book, I, I guess you would say. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of lonely characters in the book, so we're going to talk about everybody. How about, can you discuss Anthony's relationship with his grandmother? Yeah, Nona is one of these uh, professional mourners. You probably have seen them who wear black for months and uh, years, independent. No one's going to take advantage of her. It's just, just really tough. And uh, she'll do anything to protect her family. I just happened to see this uh, program about that Phil Rosenthal has on Netflix. Netflix, I think it's called Feed Phil, where he goes to these different restaurants. And he visits uh, New York, and he, he interviews this 180-plus-year-old guy who makes pizzas. And he takes these pizzas out with his bare hands. And that's, uh, that's pretty much, uh, that pretty much sums up Nona. Just tough, and no one's going no to mess with her. So did you have a Nona? Is this is she based on your Nona? No, like I said, I came here when I was a year, so I didn't really know my grandparents. I, I visited them a few times, but there were Nonas in the neighborhood where I grew up in. And I guess my mom would be the closest one I can I can come to because she was famous for taking things out of the oven with uh, with no uh, oven mitts. <laughs> yeah, shocking. Um, wow. So what about Anthony's work? And his relationship with Freddie, his busk. Yeah, Freddie, he's one of my favorite characters. He's this old school Chicago guy who works for streets and sanitation. And he mangles the language, you know, give me three of those and two of these. And so I always think I grew up speaking three languages, English, Italian, and Chicago. And can, he's you, just... can you talk a little more in, uh, in Chicagoese? <laughs> Uh, take uh, three of them uh, potatoes over there, not not them over there. Yeah, yeah. I I, I want the the fresher ones over there and the ones at the front. Okay. So he, it don't it don't matter. It don't matter. He's so unlike me, outgoing and funny and comfortable with himself, and uh, I I guess that's the reason I, I like him so much. And he's one of the few adults in Anthony's world that provides any kind of encouragement. So I guess a, a father figure of sorts. Mm-hmm. And what, what about Anthony's work? What about the work that the two of them do? Yeah, they don't do a whole lot of work. Uh, I, I think workers in Chicago used to be able to get away with that. You know, the famous image was uh, four guys circling a, a, a sewer and, or, and one of the guys is working and the other three or four are just kind of looking around waiting. So uh, Freddie and Anthony don't do a whole lot of what you would call work. Freddie ends up in bars uh, most often. But but he provides the emotional support and he is able to pull some strings for Anthony to find out some things that he needs to find out. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about the bars that they spend some time in. <laughs> yeah, I did a little research on that. A lot of the bars were like Mike Royko hangouts because at one point they meet uh, Mike Royko. And uh, I just wanted to recreate the, uh, the dark uh, taverns, of 1967 and the smells. And I don't know if I did it justice or not because I didn't spend a whole lot of time in, in bars. Uh, you know, this is a, a national podcast. So there are going to be people who, 
who don't really know Mike Royko. Can you talk about him a little? Just explain who he was. Yeah, he was this local uh, columnist, journalist, and most politicians hated him, especially Mayor Daley. And Sox fans hated him. Gun enthusiasts, gun enthusiasts hated him. Uh, but he gave voice to, to these little people who didn't have, have a voice. And he pointed out hypocrisy, uh, even in himself. And it's just uh, funny as hell. Just one damn good writer. This is a daily column. And so people would be reading his column on the, on the bus and stores everywhere. And not all the columns hold up, but it, it's amazing that any of them hold up because this is just a daily column. Mm-hmm. And there's a book about him. He's known. here. Yeah, several books. Sure. Yeah. So, okay, on another track, why does Anthony think his parents blame him? Yeah, I don't know if there's any actual truth to that. I think it's just uh, like if you're planning a surprise party for someone, you're, you're convinced that they know about it. And so I, I think he's just, just overthinks it. And the, the fact is he doesn't even know the, the events of the, of the fire because he he ends up uh, blacking out immediately after. And so he doesn't really come to uh, terms with this until, until quite late in the book. But he thinks his parents blame him for his sister. Yeah. Again, I, I think it's, it's something he's exaggerated in his own life because uh, his father is more or less estranged for most of the book. And this is the kind of guy who doesn't really believe that, he deserves any good that comes to him. And so he's not able to be a father to, uh, to his son. Um, so let's talk about the neighbor, really interesting character, another Chicago kind of portrait. Why is Lipschultz so obsessed with the fire and with Anthony? Yeah, he's not as uh, admirable as the other Chicago guy, Freddie. Um, and I, I don't know if I was conscious while writing this book, but as I look back, I think he represents for me these uh, school administrators who lose sight of what's important. One year we had uh, this, we had administrators ban Halloween costumes at our school. And there were some clever students who were, I think they wore suits and they could be costumes or maybe not. And so this one administrator ended up chasing a student around the halls, like no one was going to show him up. <laughs> And I think that that mentality, uh, I've lived with with many administrators. I've worked uh, at different schools. And so I've seen that so often that I'm pretty sure that I modeled Lipschultz after that kind of of character. He's not going to put up with any insubordination. But to be more specific, since he's an ex-cop, I think he's still uh, he's still trying to solve the case I think maybe he'll see some glory in it if he uh, if he can solve this case this is unfinished business and since Anthony doesn't give him the respect that he thinks is his due he is uh, constantly uh, mulling this over yeah and Chicago cops are kind of not getting a lot of great press right now so it's kind of interesting to read something back then uh, where kind of deserved the bad press. He's not a good guy. Yeah. And I wasn't trying to, to paint a broad brush here. I was just this one particular cop who was, uh, yeah, not a, not a great guy. And I don't know many cops. I didn't base it on any particular cop. Like I said, more, uh, more like probably more with administrators. 
Mm-hmm. So um, how is the community around him involved in Anthony's quest for answers? How, who's helping him? Who's blocking him? What about the nuns? What about the, the administrators that you've been talking about? Where's Anthony? Yeah, it's, a, uh, it's a close-knit neighborhood, the kind of uh, neighborhood where people have gardens in their backyard and they're making their own spaghetti sauce. But when it came to the fire, there wasn't, uh, again, a lot of support. You were uh, pretty much on your own. I remember reading of that some of these kids were still wearing the same coats years later, and you could still smell the fire in these coats. You know, why the hell no one thought of uh, starting some fundraiser for these kids to get new coats is, is just uh, incredible. Devastating. So they, commentary on the community or well on the city too yeah i'm sure if they had uh addressed it more directly and if they had uh come to terms with the emotional toll that those kinds of things might have been addressed but it was this culture of uh, the late uh, 50s it was a catholic culture it was the italian culture you just didn't uh, deal with these issues uh, head on but then what what did they do? What what came? What what happened afterwards? How did the city change? You said there were changes to fire laws. What, what happened in the city? Well, the uh, the fire departments had already had some codes in place, but they didn't really enforce them. Uh, the archdiocese was able to put them off, and uh, nothing's gonna we're, nothing's gonna happen. We're gonna be okay. But afterward, there were sprinklers that you had to have, and uh, fire doors that we talked about a little bit earlier and, and more efficient alarm systems. But you said there were, uh, there were rules in place, but they just avoided them or didn't pay attention. So how do we address that? What happens now if a school, um, what happens now? Well, 92 children died. So I, I think that, that, uh, woke people up and they knew they couldn't uh, put this off anymore. And, they, they had to enforce it. Well, was anybody punished? Anybody slapped on the wrist? I don't think so. so I don't think so. No culpability. I'm pretty sure uh, that nothing like that uh, happened. Oh, so what should we take away from where my body ends and the world begins? Well, to me, reading is so personal that I don't know what readers will take away. But uh, just like when you listen to a good song, I would hope that you would make it your own or you watch a movie and, you, and yet there's this illusion that uh, the movie was made for you. As famous neurologist Oliver Sacks, he had, he had uh, in his last book, which came out after he died, he said something that has stuck with me. He says that when we think of a, a memory, like uh, our father was uh, trying to change the tire or something like that. Was it a really a memory or was it a story that we heard or was it an article that we read where it wasn't even our dad? We're, we're not quite sure. Uh, so we're not really good at, at pointing out the, the source of a memory, but he says this indifference to source allows us to take in books and movies and arts almost as if they're primary experiences, as if they were coming from within us, which is just a, a beautiful way of, uh, of looking at it, I think. Mm. 
so all in all, I think I would hope that uh, people read it carefully and uh, make it their own and hopefully reminds them of something in their lives that, uh, that they need to be reminded of. I forgot to ask, so does this book have any connection with your previous, with any of your short stories or with anything from your first novel? Is there any connection? Uh, I guess with my first two books, they, they focus more on it, the Italian-American experience. And even though this main character is an Italian-American, I think, uh, I think that doesn't come to the foreground as much. Um, I guess all of them focus on families and how we deal with uh, the dynamics within a family and how tragedy uh, shapes family family life and how we endure. Hmm. So what are you working on now? Well, I wrote a uh, screenplay of the book, the first draft, and I need to get back to that. And that's an interesting, fun process because you have to uh, you have to make it about a hundred pages. So you have to fuse characters, get rid of characters. Uh, you have to make sure that the action sends the message. Uh, you, you can't have uh, too much exposition. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on that and uh, finishing up also a mystery set in Chicago. It's uh, there's a 17-year-old boy who's uh, in jail, accused of murdering his father, and his younger brother is uh, scouring the city trying to find clues to get him out of jail. And then I'm writing songs. I'm taking classes at Old Town School of Folk Music, and uh, that's pretty satisfying because you can finish a song in a, in a few days, a week, two weeks, as opposed to a book that takes several years. Did you want to sing something for us? Uh, maybe not. <laughs> um, so... If in the movie version, the director said, Tony, we want you to be in the movie, who would you like to be? Freddie or Lipschultz? Or do you think you could get away with playing 20-year-old Anthony? No, I think I'd be just an extra walking by like Alfred Hitchcock or something like that. (laughs) I I don't think I'd want to be cast. But it is fun thinking about other actors being cast. Uh, I haven't really thought specifically about that, but... Okay, let us know. And um, so are you about to publish anything? Is something coming out soon? Because this came out uh, last year in 2017? Yeah, at the end of the year, in December of 2017. Uh, Nothing in the works, but I have a few things out there to to one publisher and uh, maybe some agents. Okay, so you're getting ready. So we should all look out for you. It's a slow process. Right? But, it is. But worthwhile. It is. I loved reading your book. I, I, I think I told you I read it in a day, in an afternoon. I couldn't put it down. And that's what every writer wants to hear. Right? Um, so thank you so much for sharing your time, Tony. Oh, well, thank you. It has been a pleasure. Hope to Thanks. hear from you soon. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Bye. And thank you for listening to this podcast from the New Books Network. Once again, I'm G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books in Fiction. And today I've been talking with Tony Romano about his book, Where My Body Ends and the World Begins, published by Allian Press in December 2017. Goodbye until my next podcast. And may all your reading be delicious, engaging, and inspiring.